slip sliding past 7 o'clock, and boy, another big one for you tonight. It's time for Iron Sports. This is 95.9, the true oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo, along for the ride. And Ira, we have no time to dilly-dally tonight. One of our most packed shows, so well, let's get right into it. Um, at 7.30, we're going to be joined by Dr. Stanley Gelber. Tell us a little bit about Dr. Gelber. Uh, Dr. Gelber has a great book out there. It's called Tommy John's uh, Elbow and Tiger Woods Back, and it's about uh, the history of sports injuries and sports things with medical conditions and how it's affected sports and in and, and general the public. It's a tremendous book. Uh, I'd love to get into some of these injuries, and we're just, we can ask about what's happening even with Patrick Mahomes and, and current events right now. And then uh, you know we're going to double up for you tonight because at 7.50, Mark Leibovich is going to join us. Mark Leibovich wrote a book called The Game. He's known as a political writer. He started covering the NFL for three years, interviews with Goodell, interviews with Brady, just an inside look. It's a phenomenal book called The Game. The paperback edition just came out, but I can't wait for this interview. The book is great, and it's going to have some good – bringing up his political background because he wrote a book called The Town about Washington, D.C., and he's been covering politics his whole life, and then put it into sports and for the NFL. It's a great, great book. We're going to uh, look forward to that at 7.30 and at 7.50, two big interviews tonight. It's a double up on Ira on Sports. So if you can't tell, Ira's not in studio. Uh, with us at the moment. Ira, where have you been? Uh, I was at the Penn State game on Saturday, the whiteout. Anyone who saw that Saturday night on television, just an amazing scene. Loved it. Penn State, huge win for Penn State on uh, Saturday night. Okay, Ira, uh, let's talk about it. World Series is decided, and, you know, one of the teams was a team that you picked months ago, and the other team is a team that you didn't pick months ago, uh, but we'll start off with them, and it's the Nationals, and I, I don't think really anybody in the world was predicting the Nationals would just roll over the National League competition the way they did. Well, I mean, this is a team, Nats have not won a playoff series uh, ever. They were 0-4 since 2012. They were 19-31 and in late May. And then they won 15 of their 17 games. They're the fourth team in the history of baseball to, win, to, to reach the World Series after being 12 games under 500. Um, this is, I mean, they haven't won a World Series title in Washington since 1924. Uh, they were down 3-1 to the Milwaukee in the eighth inning, came back and won the wild card game. They were down 3-1 to the Dodgers in game five in the eighth and came back and won over heavy favor. And they, uh, then they go against the Cardinals. They outscore them 20-6, to destroy them in four games. Uh, great win. Uh, Washington's on a roll. I mean, this is, we always talk about momentum in the playoffs. So right now the Astros are by far, by far the better team. But when you talk about momentum, when you talk about enthusiasm, when you talk about you know, anything can happen in the playoffs, to, to count Washington out right now would be insane. You cannot count a team with the pitching staff they have, the, the clutch, clutch hitters they have, and think that the Astros just have to show up and they're going to win four out of seven games. No, and I agree with you. And my, my only concern is the layoff now. When you're a hot team like that, and then you're going to go you know, a week plus without playing, that bothers me a little bit. If they were jumping right into this series, I would think it was an even 50-50 on how I'd go with this one. You know, Ira, interesting you bring up that stat about 19-31 and 31 in late May. They were the same record as the Detroit Tigers, who finished at the bottom of the league. So just goes to show you, you're never out of it, especially uh, that early in baseball. Um, let's go back to Monday night, uh, because this was a big win here. Well, that was the game that was two. It was two zero. It was a must win for the game for the Cardinals. Nationals bring out Strasburg. Steven Strasburg, first pick, two thousand nine draft. 
three years later, he was in the playoffs, and they and they they wouldn't they wouldn't pitch him. They said, "Your hit your pitch count. We're not going to throw you." They lost the game, but he comes out now as a grizzled veteran or whatever you want to say in the mid twenties. But he threw 117 pitches, seven innings. He's now three and zero in the playoffs with a 164 ERA, 34, 33 strikeouts, one walk. Uh, Jack Flaherty, who had given up no for the Cardinals, had given up four runs in a game almost all year. Gave up four runs in the third inning. Starts. We've talked about Anthony Rendon. We've been talking about him the whole time. Two for three. He's 12 hits in the playoffs. He makes this engine go. He's the he's the man, and he was great. I mean, he got a single, uh, a robo single, each in singles. He, Rendon had the double, and then Kendrick doubles 4-0. Game over. Nationals up 3-0. And uh, just just that dominant game. And then you go to, to game four, and you're like, okay, well, maybe the Cardinals might have some fight in them. Maybe they'll try. Nationals bring out Patrick Corbin, who is the one pitcher they signed for $140 million when Bryce Harper turned down the $300 million contract. He became the first pitcher uh, ever in a postseason game to strike out 10 batters in four innings. He struck out five of his first six. The Nationals put up seven runs in the bottom of the first and just – sort of just coasted the rest of the way. I mean, they knocked out Dakota Hudson, who lasted only their starter for the Cardinals in 15 pitches. Um, the Cardinals, you know, they made they scored four runs in the fifth and made it a little close. But I liked how the bullpen, the Nationals' bullpen has been at the worst ERA of any bullpen in the history of baseball in the, in the playoffs. And, but Rainey, Doolittle, and Hudson, they give him one run the rest of the game. Uh, when Car- Carpenter came up in the eighth, they were able to get him out uh, with bases loaded. Uh, but just a great win. Uh, I, I think, as you said, maybe the rest. But in order for this team to get their rotation set uh, what, and get, give rest to Scherzer and Strasburg and Corbin, I think that was more important than any, like, you know, still playing a couple extra days. The fact that their pitchers are rested because uh, they're, they're going to need to pitch a lot. I mean, they're going to be using short, these starters. I oh, think yeah. the extra rest will help the pitchers. And uh, I think that it's, they're, now they're perfectly positioned. I like the fact that both teams now can go in the World Series with their rotation set. You know, Ira, it's funny that we had such ridiculously um, uh, suspenseful and amazing endings of some of these series. The Harry Kendrick um, walk-off grand slam, Jose Altuve. Tuve doing it to the Yankees. This one was the most anticlimactic, you know, season finale ever. With them, Dakota Hudson lasting .1 innings and the Nationals scoring seven runs in elimination game. And you know, you knew from that point that this is going to be a team to be reckoned with. Going to the other series, Ira. Obviously, you know, if you follow Ira on sports, you know, I'm a big Yankee fan. When it comes down to it, you can criticize Aaron Boone for some of his decisions. You can say guys did the wrong thing. At the end of the day, the better team won here. Houston is just stacked from top to bottom. They've got the pitching. They've got the hitting. They hit timely. They field. They do everything, and they're advancing over the Yankees. Right. I mean, they won for the series four games out of two. They beat the Yankees in 2015 in a wild-card game. In 2017, they beat the Yankees in seven games. Jeff Lunau, the general manager, 2017, August 31st, team's already phenomenal. Team's great. They go out and get Verlander from the Tigers for players they don't know. Plus, they get $16 million from the Tigers. January 9th, January 1st, 9th, 2019, they trade for Garrett Cole from the Pirates for Joe Mosgram, Cole Mosgram, and two other prospects. Then in August 1st of this year, they trade at the last minute, they get Zach Rexy for four prospects. 
These were all trades that the Yankees could have made. These were all trades that if you listen to sports talk radio in New York, they said the Yankees should make trade for Verlander, trade for Cole. Maybe not so much for Granke, but they were talking about it. The Yankees did not make the trade. The Astros made the trade. And also the Dodgers didn't make the trade. So I give credit for the, to the Astros, and I give credit for the Nationals for prioritizing starting pitching, bringing the best starting pitchers you possibly can, and using those. And it's, it's just great to see. But the Astros, look, they took a lot of risk. They, this is the, but to get, making these trades, but these trades uh, turned out perfectly. No, they absolutely did. At 7.12, Iron Sports. This is the True Oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. At 7.30, Dr. Stanley Gelber joins us at 7.50. Mark Leibovich joins us. You're going to want to stick around for both of those. All right, Ira, you can go ahead and stick a thorn in my side. Let's uh, recap these games just a little bit. There were certain games that it just seemed like the Yankees were just never going to get anything going on these guys. And when they did, they couldn't hit runners in scoring position. Let's go to game three. This was... Garrett Cole has not pitched this bad in 20 starts, and he still looked good, don't get me wrong, but they had opportunities they couldn't cash in. You're seeing game three in Tuesday night was exactly why the Yankees lost the series. Atulvi, clutch hitter, comes out to start the game, home run. So it gives Cole that lead. And then when the Yankees, and then they were able the rest of the inning to get Severino, they, who has been only like his fifth or sixth start of the season, he pitched 36 pitches. They, they, they know how to work the at-bats. This is what the Yankees did the other teams. That's why the Yankees and Red Sox teams last so long. Yeah. They're like, okay, you might have a great starting pitcher, in, but we're going to take pitches. We're going to foul pitches off. And then we're going to get your bullpen. And that's exactly what they did. They were able to get Severino out of the game after four innings. And, and then when the Yankees came up with bases loaded in the second, what a D.D. Gregorius he grounded out the next inning when Josh Reddick had a home run. But then in the bottom of the second, the Yankees had first and second. Aaron Judge strikes out. The bottom of the fifth, the Yanks had first and second, and D.D. slides out again. It's pretty deep, but again, they just kept left leaving men. And just shows you the difference. Against the Twins, those shots were home runs. Against the Twins, they were, they were winning these games and blowing them out. But against a little bit better pitching, they're not able to get that. You're just, you're just a slight millisecond slower to get your bat on that ball. And so that home run is just a long fly ball or a ground out. And that was the difference. And then you saw in the seventh inning when Altuve was able to – just such a smart player, Jose Altuve. He's only 5'6". He's won an MVP, but what a great player. He takes third base and, on a rundown, and then he's able to score on a wild pitch. The, the Astros do everything. They hit the home runs. They run the bases. They play good defense, and they're good, they have great pitching. That's what makes them tremendous. And then uh, – so that's what – I mean, that, I thought that was – you know, when you win a game 4-1 with Cole pitching like that, that was emblematic of the entire series. And then, you know what, it's exactly the same thing that happened in Game 4, I, where Zach Greinke comes out, doesn't have his best stuff. The Yankees get three walks in the, in the top of the, uh, in the first inning, and they get one run out of it. And that was just, it was the problems that they had the entire series. They have three walks. Greinke is like, you, you could have knocked Greinke out there in that yep. first inning. He was teetering, totally teetering. He walked in a run. He hadn't given up three walks in a, I think, four walks in a game. <laughs> and he just did it in one inning. And it was a total disaster. Sanchez strikes out. And then what do the Astros do? They come back and say, George Springer. I mean, clutch after clutch performer. You saw him what he did against the Dodgers uh, in the World Series in Game 7. He hits a three-run home run. Carlos Correa comes in, another hits a three-run home run. Now they're up 6-1. But even the Yankees with bases loaded in the fifth, Glaber, they had bases loaded with one out, and Torres and, and Carcione both struck out. So it was just, they, again and again, they came up. The Yankees had chances with men on base. They couldn't score. I mean, the one thing aspect about this game was that CC Sabathia uh, pitched probably the last 
Gaskin, a tremendous Hall of Fame career, came in, pitched for a batter, then left with an injury. Uh, but they, you know, people are making a big deal about this game. The Yankees had four errors. I don't know if the errors made a big difference. I think that their inability to hit with men on scoring position or men on base, and their inability also uh, to to just in terms of, of, of scoring runs, they just couldn't manufacture anything. And then Azuna comes in and, and gets a four out save and closes that game out. But that was a game to go from when the two one game where the Yankees needed to make it two two to go up three one really set the Astros up great because you know you have Verlander going, you have Cole going, and and, and sort of, you know, put tremendous pressure back on the Yankees. Yeah, and, you know, Ira, uh, up next in Game 5, I think every Yankee fan knew that they were going to win that game just to go back to Houston and have our spirits crushed. And surely enough, that's what happened. Well, it was, how about this stat? In 1,609 postseason games, this is the first time that both teams scored in the first inning and neither team scored the rest of the game. The rest of the, the, rest of the, of the game. The Astros took a one nothing lead. Uh, and then Verlander got roughed up. LeMay with a home run. Aaron Hicks comes in at a three-run home run. But after that, um, there was the Verlander pitched six innings, gave up like one hit, nine strikeouts the rest of the game, which in the small picture was you lost the game, but they didn't have to use their bullpen. They could, they could, they, that, the fact that Verlander was able to stay in the entire game and keep it close, and even though uh, Paxton pitched great for the Yankees, if you're a Yankee fan, you've got to say, boy, boy, Paxton, after that first outing, was poor, but to have a great outing like he had, uh, that was tremendous. But Verlander was able to keep the bullpen fresh for game six. And then this was the only game that Stanton came in. I mean, this was the one last two years ago when the, when the Yankees had a chance to get Cole, and they went after Stanton instead, and he's getting a lot of, a lot of uh, criticism in New York because you're the highest-paid player on the team, you were 0-3 with two strikeouts that game, and then you were hurt the other games, and you're supposed to only be a DH. So it's a, it, we've seen Stanton in Miami, and he was a great player down here, but it's just not with uh, what New York's been looking for, especially New York is expecting your players I mean, to perform in the postseason. When you can't even play in the postseason, that's a problem. No, absolutely, and uh, yeah, the Yankees fans not too happy with uh, Stanton and that bloated contract, but regardless, he's on the team, and he will be for a while because nobody's taken that off our hands. Um, game six, you knew it was going to happen. They weren't going to go out there with um, with any of the aces. They were going to rest them, but uh, you know, deep at down, I, I think a lot of Yankee fans knew that there was no way they were going to take two in Houston, and we didn't even get the chance because they beat, they beat us up in game six. Well, Peacock, Brad Peacock's the first pitcher since 1924 to end the game five. So he end the game and then start the next game because they went to the bullpen approach both teams did because they didn't trust their starters. So they actually just used a bullpen approach. Each team used seven pitchers. But, the, again, the Astros jumping out to that 3 nothing lead on the Guerrero home run. Uh, the Yankees kept it close. And then I have to get – I'm leaving the Penn State game, listening to this game, and the, and the Astros are ready to win this game. They're up 4-2 as soon as on the mound. And D.J. LeMayo, it's a two-run home run to tie it. And, I mean, I'm stuck in a parking lot with a million fans trying to get out, listening to it, trying to watch it on my iPad. It was impossible because it was hard to get service. But and then uh, Chapman for the Yankees in the bottom and the bottom of the ninth gets the first two batters out. Springer walks and El Tuvi home run, amazing two run home run, walk off, uh, great win and great. I mean he is such a great performer, such a great player, defensively, offensively, clutch. I mean, what team would not want to have Jose Altuve on on their roster? And uh, it's it was just great win for the Astros. And again, a team that's been the favorite that won 107 games. They were able to do it in the playoffs too. They, the Rays took them to five games, but they were able to beat the Yankees. Uh, the people waiting the whole year for this series, and they showed they were the better team. No, absolutely, they did. Uh, you know, I know that the postseason doesn't factor into it. 
But DJ LeMayhew has got to get some MVP votes, Ira. I know Mike Trout the season he had, but look where Mike Trout's team's been and look where LeMayhew's team's been. And LeMayhew just absolutely killed it in the playoffs. I got to throw him some votes, I. Yeah, good. I mean, he's someone the Yankees. Look, the, they, they ask Aaron Boone what they're going to do next year. We're not going to give a months and months to talk about that. But they said, oh, it doesn't even know. Well, the fact is the Astros just do a lot, do everything a little bit better than the Yankees do, and that's the difference. And the Astros are bringing in players. And, and also there's this clutch gene. And the Yankees had that. When they had the Derek Jeters and the Bernie Williams and the Scott Broches, they had that. The Astros seem to have that clutch gene right now. And so do, and so do the Nationals. The Nationals have made big plays, and, the, and the, when you look at Soto and Rendon, these are big-time hitters, and they seem to have that clutch gene also, so I, I'm excited for this, for this uh, World Series. Ira, how's the uh, World Series uh, going to shape up? Well, you have Scherzer and Cole on Tuesday, one of the greatest pitching performances. I mean, it, it's exactly how you want it. Scherzer, Cole, Tuesday. Strasburg, Verlander on Wednesday. Granke and Corbin on Friday in, in, in Washington. And then the question is, what do they do with Game 4? Do they go to the bullpen approach? Or do they start Scherzer and Cole on short rest? I, I, it depends on if a team's up 3-0 or, or whatever. I think a lot depends on the series. Cole has never uh, started a game on three days rest. So I do not think he would start. But it's going to be great. And then, I mean, if this ever went seven, you'd actually have Scherzer and Corbin and Cole and Granke, like as teams, as uh, tag teams trying to do this. But I love starting pitching. I love clutch hitting. I think this is going to be great. When you look like a guy like Ryan Zimmerman, who was drafted in 2005 for the Nationals, and he's been there this entire time since the team started, um, that's, I, I love the fact that he's on that team. The fact that these, both these teams play in West Palm Beach, they, they practice against each other. They must, I think they play like 12, 12 or 13 between split quad games you know, the whole, this in, in February and March. They're familiar with each other. It's more, much more familiar than two teams between American League and National League would. Um, I think this is going to be a great series. Uh, I, I'm pumped for it. I'm going to be at that game on Friday night in Washington and, uh, and hopefully Saturday and Sunday too. But uh, I think this is shaping up to be – this is a chance for Scherzer Cole, Strasburg Verlander, Granky Corbin. I mean, these are matches you really – matchups you really want to see. Ira, and how cool is it, like you said, that literally just three or four miles down Military Trail from our studios is where these guys um, call home in, in the offseason. So it's great that uh, at least South Florida is being represented uh, by those teams. You're listening to Ira on Sports. It's the True Oldies channel. We're just about eight minutes away from Dr. Stanley Gelber joining us. You're going to want to uh, enjoy this. Um, you know, he's going to talk to us a little bit about injuries, and we do have to just mention this real quick. Zion Williamson, uh, number one overall pick in the NBA draft, had surgery today. Ira, he's going to be out about eight weeks. Is there any shot you can win a rookie of the year after being out for eight weeks? And do you think that injuries are going to play an issue in Zion's career? I think... I think from now for all the rookies and the way the NBA's played now, they're going to rest everybody. You're going to start seeing it's not just going to be for rookies, it's going to be everyone. You're going to not see people play 82 games. Um, I'm concerned with Zion. We're going to spend next week all talking. I'm doing fantasy basketball drafts. I'm pumped for the year, and they start too early in my book, but we'll have time to talk about it. But I feel bad that Zion's not there for the first two weeks, but uh, I'm pumped next week. Well, I will spend 15 minutes, you know, previewing my who I'm going to let you know who's going to win the NBA title this year. And I can't wait to do that. Um, Ira, we've got about just about seven minutes. You mentioned you were at Penn State versus Michigan, and this was a big win for your Nittany Lions. Tremendous. Penn State's now number six in the country. They, they won 28-21. I mean, 
but the atmosphere the night before. To go there, I was with my girlfriend. We went around town. We got to see everything. It was awesome. Uh, the, the next day, come up there. There's game day. Everyone white out. I mean, white out's not just at night. The entire day, everyone's wearing white. The Michigan fans were out. Penn State fans were out. The perfect weather, tailgating from 9 in the morning till 7.30 at night. It was just just great. And everyone's in the stadium at, like, 6.30. So everyone's dressed in white. Um, and when Penn State won the toss, they, they kicked off the Michigan to start the game. Michigan, this is the, the 21,000 students were so loud that on the first play of the game, after they just received the kickoff and on a, on, a, on a touchback, they had to call a timeout because they couldn't even call the play, even though it was probably, should have been scripted. And Penn State dominated that first part of the game. But really, i got to give Michigan credit. They hung in there. I mean, Penn State, the first quarter, they, uh, Clifford threw to Firemers for a touchdown pass. And then they stopped Michigan on four downs. Then Ricky Slade had a 44-yard run. Uh, they're up 14-0. Michigan throws another inter- interception. And then Clifford threw a 29 pass to Camler, who's phenomenal. They're up 21 nothing. But for the next three quarters of the game, Michigan sort of dominated. They came back. They cut it 21-7 at halftime. And then all Penn State seemed to do the rest of the games was three and outs. Michigan was driving down and, 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 and scoring. Made it 21-14. And Sean Clifford, though, made a major league pass to K.J. Hamler. In the third quarter, 50-yard touch, touchdown pass to make it 28-14 uh, was just a tremendous – that, if they don't do that, I think – I mean, if this game would have been five quarters, as my friends from Michigan said, I think Penn State would have lost, and I agree with them. Um, Michigan went on a drive there, uh, nine play, 75 yards to make it 28-21. Penn State goes three and out. Michigan drives down with you know, the last few minutes of the game. They convert on fourth down once. And then they threw the ball uh, uh, to Ronnie Bell in the end zone. He has the ball, and he drops it. Otherwise, it would have been tied in overtime. And then what I say about over, you know, the best thing, Penn State gets the ball, and they finally got that first down that they needed to get in order to keep Michigan off the field and able to be hold on to that uh, game by seven. But first downs, Michigan at 26, Penn State 14. Michigan at 417 yards, Penn State 283. Michigan ran, had 38 minutes time of possession, Penn State 22. Um, I think Shea Patterson played great for Michigan. I thought it, uh, in terms of overall running the game, almost 300 yards passing and, and uh, threw, ran for a touchdown. But uh, it was a great win for Penn State. Uh, and I think Michigan, I think it gives Michigan confidence going back into Notre Dame next week, playing a big home game. Um, and it was just, just a great atmosphere. I think, they, I think if they would have lost 35 nothing, that people would have been on Harbaugh. But I don't hear a lot of people criticizing Harbaugh for how much fight Michigan showed in that game. Ira, um, you know, so I, I went to college right on the cusp of where Alabama fans and University of Tennessee fans kind of meet. There's a lot of overdraft there. The way UT season's been going, I thought losing by only 22 was pretty good versus Alabama. Well, they've now lost 12 games in a row. Um, this is one. This is a weird rivalry in that there's there's 14 SEC teams, seven in one division, seven in the other. In the one division, you play all years. You play eight games. You play six games, and you have two crossover games. But this game is set every year. So Tennessee considers the rival game is Alabama. Yes, an Alabama fan. What's your rival game? They're like, it's not Tennessee. It's LSU. <laughs> it's Auburn. <laughs> Tennessee is way down the list. Um, the only thing major about this game, I would think, was that Tua gets hurt uh, in the first. Uh, second quarter, he was 11 for 12, 155 yards. Um, they hung on to win the game, but it looks like he's only out a couple weeks and back for the LSU game. But when he went down with that injury, that's always a concern because, uh, you know, are they able going to, uh, you know, if they don't have Tua for LSU, LSU would be a heavy favorite in that game. Ira, what about uh, LSU and Mississippi State? This one was a, a pretty nice win for LSU. 
Well, I'll tell you what. Joe Burrows is like setting himself a two out. He's setting himself that maybe he's going to be the Heisman Trophy. I mean, he's right up there with Jalen Hurts, but another blowout win, 36-13 to 13 over Mississippi State. I mean, he is just – Burrows is playing great. And you've got to say, you know, LSU looks great. They have the defense that, that they've always had, and now this explosive offense. They've always had these great wide receivers. They had Odell Beckham Jr. You know, just in current times, they had Odell Beckham Jr., Jarvis Landry. They had great wide receivers, but they've just been known as a pounded team, run the ball all the time. But now they're explosive. Now they play offense like Oklahoma, and they have defense like LSU. And that's why people are saying, wow, I mean, this is a team. This could be LSU's year. But I still think Alabama is better. I cannot wait for that game. I hope to go to it. But that Alabama-LSU game in three weeks is going to be just monumental. Ira, you know, you brought up Jalen Hurts. If Lincoln Riley wins three Heisman trophies in a row with three different quarterbacks, to me this is the greatest accomplishment in, in sports coaching ever. I mean, up there with John Wooden winning seven in a row. I think it'd be incredible, and he looked great again. He missed one. He was 16 for 17 in the game, and the only pass he missed was Drake Stoops uh, dropped the pass. He had three touchdowns uh, passing, two touchdowns running, 75 yards running. He is he is the favorite to win the Heisman Trophy. Jalen Hurts is really he had almost 600 yards for a team. Then we had seven third downs. The most exciting part of that game was when the Boomer Schooner toppled over, and luckily the people on it uh, stayed okay. But it was like they showed that, that about a million straight times the the uh, the, the scene of that. But uh, Oklahoma's rolling, and uh, they they really just they really like it. They're, they're set for the college football playoffs. But they'll be twenty point favorites over everybody else they play the rest of the year. Ira, there was a bunch of memes, you know, circulating social media with the song "Rock Me, Mama" like a wagon wheel <laughs> with it going over. That was uh, definitely an interesting part of that game. Um, let's wrap it up. Let's just talk about Florida real quick. This team, to me, being number nine in the country is a lot softer than some of the competition above them. This game against South Carolina was was pretty darn close. They were tied at the half. I like Cal Trasco. I think Cal Trasco is doing a great job. South Carolina had the big win over Georgia. Both teams acquitted themselves great. The weather was terrible, raining and everything. South Carolina is up 2017, but on fourth and three, Trask made a big completion. They went ahead and won that game, and, and, and Florida sets it out. I mean, that was definitely just a, just a great win. In two weeks, we're going to get Florida-Georgia Florida, Florida Georgia for the SEC East title. It's, um, you know, we talk about it every week on this show that there's not that many key matchups this week. Ira, what are you looking forward to uh, this, uh, this Saturday in uh, NCAA? Wisconsin-Ohio State at 12 o'clock going to be huge. Wisconsin lost to Illinois. They were up 20-9, to nine, uh, killing, just dominating. I thought Wisconsin, again, they just put the foot off the gas. I mean, they played, they let Illinois have a 40-yard run. They, Jonathan Taylor fumbled. Uh, they threw an interception, and then Illinois kicked the field goal to win the game. 30-point underdogs, and they won that. Uh, it's just an amazing upset, but now they're going against Ohio State. Oklahoma and Kansas State is at 12 o'clock also. Oklahoma's favorite by 20. And then Auburn LSU at 330. Uh, LSU's favorite by 10, but this is going to be that big test for LSU before the Alabama game. And then Penn State's at Michigan State. And Penn State's only a seven-point favorite. Michigan State plays Penn State tough in, in East Lansing, so that should be a good game. And then, of course, it's 730. Notre Dame at Michigan Great game, uh, Michigan's favorite by four. And, and, and if you want to stay up late, watch the Cal-Utah and Washington State-Oregon games because as the top teams are there, the Pac-12, the only chance they have is the only one-loss teams are left are Utah and Oregon. And they both got to stay with one loss. 
beat in the Pac-12 championship game, and maybe that winner, if they have one loss, has a chance to get in the college football playoffs. Notre Dame has to be win Michigan. If they lose that game, they're out of they're out of any discussion for college football playoffs. Also, it's seven thirty one. You're listening to Ira on Sports. This is the True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo, and Ira, we've got a very special guest on the line. It's Doctor Gelber. Doctor, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure, guys. Ira, what do you have? Um, Dr. Gelber, you have the book Tiger Woods Back, Tommy John's Elbow, Injuries and Tragedies that Transform Career, Sports, Society. I read your book today. It's a great book. And, and what's so interesting about this is, like, I have a lot of listeners that are not, like, watch every single game sports fans, but you don't really have to watch any games. And you don't have to even be a sports fan to like your book because you – hit the key moments in, in sports, but not how it transforms sports, but actually transforms society. And I think that was the, one of the things I read about that book. I mean, you described the Cobra effect, if you want, want to talk about that in the book, but, but mentioned what, what the Cobra effect had, and for example, on Sandy Koufax and Tommy John. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly what I was trying to do with the book, is show how these various injuries and tragedies, whether it was Sandy Koufax, Lyle Alzada, Hank Gathers, Duku Kim in boxing, Len Bias in basketball, how their deaths or their injuries or any tragedy really had a broader effect on society, and that's where the whole Cobra effect came in. So briefly what the Cobra effect is, is a story that's been used to describe politics and economics where you have an unintended consequence. So in India, in Imperial India, we go back, we have a venomous snake invasion, so there's way too many cobras, and so the Shah decided to put a bounty on cobra skins. So the villagers brought in cobra skins by the basket load, bounties were going out, but the snake population didn't decline. And so after some investigation, they found that farmers were actually raising the cobras to kill for the snake skins to get the bounty. So once the government found out about this, they killed the bounty program. So the farmers, unable to do anything with these cobras, released them back into the wild, and so the population went up. So all of a sudden you have an unintended consequence, in fact, the opposite consequence that you wanted. And that's really what we talk about with the Sandy Koufax and Tommy John, is we have a surgery to help stabilize the, shoulder, the elbows of pitchers. So the Tommy John surgery is basically we recreate a ligament that's on the inner side of the elbow that helps to stabilize your arm when you bring it back to throw. Unfortunately, today, the highest age group we're seeing this in is 15 to 17-year-olds and 15 to 19-year-olds which is not who we initially thought we were going to be saving the careers of. And so because we have this surgery, we have a lot of people who don't understand the surgery, think it's a performance enhancement. They don't understand that a lot of these injuries are preventable, that you even need an injury to get Tommy John surgery. So that's one example where we have a consequence. We have a good thing. We try to do something. And, in fact, we end up with the opposite than intended consequence. Um, the one thing you mentioned in your book, which I – you talked about something happened when someone dies and it, or something, a tragedy happens. And then how it somehow, if it happened, it's been happening like to people all over. Like people were dying of steroids. People were having heart problems. People were everything. When Lyle Alzado died of steroids in 1992, it suddenly brought steroids back more in. People started talking about it more. It galvanized society saying, wait, maybe the steroids thing is bad. Maybe it's, it's just, it was almost laughed about. Talk about what that impact in Lyle Alzado. And a lot of my listeners don't know who Lyle Alzado was, but the fact that after he died, what kind of impact that had on the idea that it's not so commonplace, to, it's not so accepted after that to be on steroids. Yeah, I mean, of all the characters in the book, I think Lyle is one of the most interesting because he grew up in an abusive family. 
he saw himself as a protector of the weak. And so he went to the gym, he grew strong, he did steroids to get bigger and stronger, and he was a maniac on the field. I mean, there's actually even a Lyle Zeta rule where you can't take your helmet off and try and hit your opponent with it. And that was inspired <laughs> because of Lyle himself. So, I mean, Lyle is an amazing character. But unfortunately, what happened was he ended up getting a brain cancer, a lymphoma. And so he denied for so many years that he didn't do steroids. And then finally, basically on his deathbed, he comes out in an interview with Maria Shriver and admits to steroid abuse. He pens an article in Sports Illustrated, and he admits that he used steroids throughout his career. And then he blames his brain cancer on steroids. And it's possible, but very unlikely, that the steroids led to his brain cancer. He was messing around with some HGH at the time, which at that time it was coming from dead animals and dead humans, and it's possible that could have led to the brain cancer, but it was very unlikely that it was the steroids. So what happened is we had a conversation of steroids because, like you said, they brought it into the media, but the bodybuilders were looking around, the other athletes were looking around, nobody else is dying of brain cancer. So they sort of dismissed the conversation and basically drove it back underground, whereas there are real side effects of steroids. Now, roid rage is one of them, but it's less common. So it's another thing where other abusers are looking around saying, well, I don't see roid rage everywhere, so that's not a big side effect. And it's true, it's not a common one. It's a real one, but it's not a common one. The common ones are like heart disease, so people dying of heart attacks, depression. You know, these are things that are real side effects, and these are the conversations we're supposed to be having, not talking about brain cancer. And so when Lyle came out with that, it really turned the conversation into sort of an unbelievable thing to those who were abusing steroids, and basically they just turned away from the conversation and just drove it further underground. So, and then another aspect of the book, another chapter of your book, Len Bias. And, and I know exactly the moment I found out Len Bias died. And if we ask people, my listeners, who's Len Bias, people don't know who he is. We talked to Coach K of Duke, two best basketball players he's ever seen, Michael Jordan and Len Bias. And he must thought Len Bias might be better than Michael Jordan. Len Bias was dominant at Maryland. It was the greatest college basketball player Some people at Maryland. He was drafted number one to, to the Boston Celtics. He was going to take the mantle from Larry Bird to Len Bias. And he's in a dorm room playing around, doing drugs, and, and, and dies. And before that, people didn't understand it. A lot about this drug academic, again, just like with the steroids, but that's suddenly his death. And, I mean, it is, it's at a level right now. I mean, Len Bias, I mean, if we, I don't want to use the Zion Williams. It was at that level. I mean, Len Bias was at the Zion Williams type of level back in those days. And for something like that to happen, that definitely traumatized the nation and also – you, you mentioned the book about motivated a lot of uh, politicians, the fact that it was in D.C., in the D.C. area, and then you saw a lot of moves from Washington about uh, in terms of drug use and cocaine and crack cocaine. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly correct. I mean, Len was going to be the next Michael Jordan, so his, doc was, his death was such a shock, um, but it became a lightning rod for the war on drugs because at the time, everybody was focusing on the crack epidemic. Everywhere you looked, there were stories about the crack epidemic, crack babies, the devastating effects of crack. And while a lot of that was true, it was sort of put out of proportion compared to cocaine, which is actually what Len died of, not crack. People assumed because he was an African-American, it was crack, but in fact it was cocaine. But the politicians, especially ones out of Boston, because they were set to have him as their number one draft pick, used that to help support their movement to look tough on drugs. And so these mandatory minimum sentences came out where it said if you have a certain amount of drugs on you, if you're busted, 
you have to face a mandatory amount of time in prison. And so the idea was to get these big-time drug dealers. But the way they set the thresholds, it was significantly higher if you were a cocaine carrier versus a crack carrier. So the big-level drug dealers weren't being busted. It was the low-level street dealers and the low-level possession busts. And because it was weighted 100 to 1 in terms of the thresholds for crack over cocaine, you had a predominant of African-Americans, young males, young females getting busted and meeting these mandatory thresholds because it's weighted so much more towards crack. And we've actually tried to reverse that. And there's been some laws that have made them a little closer, but they're still, in our justice system today, active people. Even the people who helped form these laws are now trying to undo these laws because they've had such a terrible effect on our justice system. And then the last, I mean, you have so many great chapters. I mean, the Magic Johnson story was tremendous. I, I don't have time to go into everyone. But back to tonight, we, I'm watching on TV, Tom Brady playing. And you, you, you talked about the, this rule to protect quarterbacks almost coming back from that, the, the year that uh, Brady was knocked out early in the, the first game of the season. And uh, right after he had, had gone uh, you know, 16-0 and 0, and then he got in, or went to the Super Bowl the year before, um, the point is that he got, well, after he got hurt, then it was almost a move from the league to start protecting the quarterback. Because when they saw Brady out for the year, they're like, this is really bad for business. We cannot have the face of the NFL hurt. And that's now we got to the stage we're at right now, which is some people, or most people are saying it's overprotecting quarterbacks. But they're still getting hurt as Patrick Mahomes is proof of last week. Yeah, I mean, although I would say with him, it's a pretty freak thing to have the patella dislocate. It's, you, know, you actually see more knee dislocations in professional football and college football than you do just the patella, which is a much better injury to have than a ligament reconstruction requiring you know, knee dislocation. So that's actually you know, not a bad thing if you're going to say, well, between the two, it's better to have a kneecap dislocation than a knee dislocation where you have to have ligaments reconstructed. But, yeah, that's exactly right. You're talking about how we're overprotecting the quarterbacks. You know, in fact, it, it's not even Tom Brady. It actually started with Carson Palmer. So when Carson Palmer tore his ACL, the owners in the league got together and they changed the rules because initially the rules were that if a defender was heading towards the quarterback, if they had an unobstructed path to the, towards the quarterback, they had to hit them low below. So they, they couldn't get them below the knees because that would injure their knees. So if you hit the defender and then you got around the defender, then that rule didn't apply. But once Carson Palmer tore his ACL, they changed that rule that if you get around a defender, you still can't hit the quarterback below the knees. And then that changed even further when Tom Brady tore his ACL, so that if he got knocked to the ground, you couldn't grab the quarterback at his knees. So all these rules are designed to protect the quarterbacks because, like you said, they are the moneymakers. And it's putting a disadvantage against these defensive players who they're getting paid less. They don't have the contracts. They don't have the star power. And so they're already sort of against the eight ball in terms of their career. And now we're protecting the quarterbacks even more. If you look at the touchdown passes, since these rules have been put in play, the overall number of touchdowns league-wide have increased significantly since these rules went into place. So these rules are protecting people who already are sort of the top of the food chain and it's just protecting them even more. Well, we're talking to uh, Dr. Jonathan Gelber. He wrote the book, 
uh, Tiger Woods back, Tommy John's elbow. It's available online um, in the bookstores, Amazon, every all, all those things. It's a great book, even if you don't like sports. Uh, but if you're just interested in terms of the sports effects on society and also the medical side of everything. So, Doctor, I want to appreciate you. Thank you very much for coming on Iron Sports, and uh, I hope to have you on again in the future. Uh, you know, for your future endeavors, if you're if you're working on any other books, we definitely would love to have you back on. Yeah, always happy to talk about sports and medicine. And then, you know, this book, like you mentioned, it's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, even Walmart's website, and, of course, your local book dealer. Thank you a lot. Thank you very much. I want to thank uh, Dr. Gelber so much for uh, popping by here. You can follow him on Twitter, Jonathan Gelber, or uh, his website, drjohngelber.com. Great stuff there, Ira. Very interesting. And it... (laughs) It's, you know, perfect timing because looking at the NFL, the brightest star in the entire league is Patrick Mahomes. And like you said earlier, he's going down and it looks like it's going to be about a month. We're not going to see him. Oh, they're saying no one knows. I mean, I I would be shocked if they rush him back. I mean, you're not going to rush a quarterback like Mahomes down. Uh, It looked more horrendous. It looked horrendous when he on the on the field on Thursday night against the Broncos. It's a dislocated kneecap. Um, I find it interesting. People say Tom Brady's unathletic. Well, it's interesting to note if the last 17 years Tom Brady's in the league, he's led the league in quarterback sneaks, never get injured. So, uh, I mean, he, it's just, again, the criticism, I'm a big Tom Brady fan. I support him a lot. And I, it just shows you how tough he is. He doesn't get credit for being tough. Not only a winner and great, but it was a bad injury for Mahomes. And, but, but the Chiefs did well. I mean, to be able to beat the Broncos, even though Troy Aikman called Denver one of the worst offenses he ever seen. Matt Moore, who we remember him for the Dolphins. Matt Moore is a very good veteran quarterback. Uh, he came in for the Chiefs through a 57-yard pass to Hill. And remember, he led the Finns to the playoffs against the Steelers in 2016 when Ryan Tannehill went down. So it's not like they can go. They could probably maybe get through a couple weeks. Uh, and the Chiefs defense played better. They only had 11 sacks going into that game, but they sacked, sacked Flacco eight times. Denver is a disaster. And the Chiefs, I think, should feel good about their defense at least that game. You know, Ira, you brought up the Patriots. There's only one other undefeated team in the league. It's San Francisco 49ers. I don't know what to make of this offense, and Jimmy Garoppolo hasn't looked amazing, but that defense can play, and it was an ugly game against the Redskins, but they got the win. 9 nothing over the Redskins, but the Redskins, you're starting to get these teams that are just terrible. The Redskins are terrible. The Dolphins are terrible. Denver's borderline terrible. Bengals are terrible. Um, and it's like it's almost like a bye week when you play this. The weather was terrible. It was raining, pouring. Uh, San Francisco did what they needed to do and won that game, and uh, – uh, but uh, it's like it's like I just don't know why the Redskins. I think they should really turn to Haskins now. Maybe it was because it was raining and it wasn't the worst. But there's got to be a time when they bring in a rookie from Ohio State uh, to uh, because their season's done with one win. Um, let's talk quickly the Dolphins and Bills AFC East matchup. Bills are pretty good. Uh, I mean, they can definitely play defense. The Dolphins actually led in this game, and it wasn't just like the first possession. They led, um, you know, in in the second and third quarter, but the Bills ended up pulling it out, and Josh Rosen, uh, you know, you have to wonder what they're doing with this team, that they're still trotting Fitzpatrick out there. Uh, It's kind of the same situation like you just said with Haskins. I want to see the kid. I don't know what the Dolphins are doing. They're, they're not showing Rosen. They put Fitzpatrick in. Kenyon Drake, they're, they're replacing with Mark Walton instead. So they're trying to trade players. I, it's, I just don't know what the plan is. Maybe they're trying to play Rose, uh, trade Rosen, but uh, it was a mess. I mean, they were leading the game, and, and actually they, they made it cut it to 21-24, but then the Bills returned an onside kick for a touchdown. Uh, but a bad loss for the Dolphins. But the Bills, again, another team like San Francisco, winning a lot of games, winning the games they have to win. Uh, but we just don't know how good they are yet. 
You know, Minnesota, Ira, it's been a tale of two quarterbacks, the best of times and the worst of times. Kirk Cousins is the best quarterback in the league since Stephon Diggs and Adam Thielen called him out, and they rolled over their division opponent. He's the first quarterback in league history for 300 yards in three straight games, have 130 passing rating and 300 yards in three games. And that was after three games ago where people thought he was the biggest bust in the history of quarterbacks. I mean, it just shows you it's the prisoner of the moment NFL, but I like Minnesota for two reasons. They have a great passing game. We'll see if Thielen is healthy. Cousins threw for four touchdowns. But Dalvin Cook ran for 142 yards and two touchdowns. The same reason why I like uh, Ohio State in football. When you have the great running back and the very or good or not great quarterback, I'll just call him very good, that's what makes your teams dangerous. And Minnesota has a very good defense, too. So at 5-2, and two, Minnesota is like they're one of those teams. If I said Minnesota's going to the Super Bowl, it's hard to argue against that one. Well, you know, who would make an argument is Green Bay Packers fans, and they're 6-1, and one, and Aaron Rodgers had arguably the best statistical game of his career. Well, when he loses Devontae Adams, he loses his best wide receiver who's been out for two games, but now he's moving the pushing ball. No, sorry, he's throwing the ball around the field to different wide receivers. He's on the same page with his coach, Matt LaFleur, where he wasn't on the same page with McCarthy. He's getting Aaron Jones, a healthy, great running back, and the Raiders, the Raiders played well, but they couldn't keep up with the Packers. And, uh, but, it, you know, look, Packers are going. They're doing great. Their defense is, might be the best defense he's had. And they're probably one of, the, again, they're one of them, Patriots. I mean, the Saints and the Packers are probably two of the favorites to go to the, uh, and, and the Vikings to go to. And I, I'm not putting the 49ers there yet, but to the Super Bowl out of the NFC. No, and the, the, yeah, there's a lot of competition. Um, we'll talk about New Orleans in a second, but Jacoby Brissett played his high school games right down the road at Dwyer High School. This guy has just wows me even more every week. I didn't expect this. Well, all the quarterbacks that played in New England, I think that's what you got to take. Uh, uh, Jimmy Garoppolo is undefeated for San Francisco. Jacoby Brissett was the third-string quarterback on behind, and the Patriots behind Garoppolo and Brady now is 4-2. and two. Uh, Big winning over Houston. Big get a win over Deshaun Watson. It's a divisional game. Uh, Texans made a mess of the fourth quarter. I mean, they were – the Indy was up 28-16, but then Houston could not come back. They failed to convert a fourth down. They threw t- two interceptions. Uh, big win for Indianapolis, especially when their running game didn't go. Marlon Mack did run the ball well, but Brissett showed that he could carry the team on his arm with 300 yards passing and four touchdowns. Big, big win for Indianapolis. Yeah, if you take all those uh, quarterbacks, they're combined 15-2 and two this season if you're counting Tom Brady, Garoppolo, and Brissett. So they know something about drafting quarterbacks in New England. They're not great at drafting every other position, but you got to wonder when uh, teams will start knocking on the door. I want to know a little bit more about Jarrett Stidham, uh, the backup now. Ira, another team that just hasn't missed a beat without its quarterback is the New Orleans Saints, and they're going to this, – this team plays defense, and they're another team. If I had to put money on it right now, I might be taking them with a healthy Drew Brees as my NFC pick. How about no Kamara, who's best running back in the league, no Jarek tight end Jarek Cook, no Brees, no problem against the Bears, the supposedly Bears' great defense with Teddy Bridgewater, a quarterback. Remember, Teddy Bridgewater was offered the Miami job. He turned it down, the starting job, to become the backup at New Orleans. What a great choice on his face. Now he's setting himself up yeah. looking as a quarterback in this league by not taking the Miami job. The Bears' defense is just awful. And Mitchell Trubisky, I do not know. Matt Nagy for Chicago has just – I can't see him keeping this, his job after the end of this year. He threw 54 passes. And he only had 250 yards. They only ran the ball seven times. They weren't just getting blown out of the game. 
this is a disaster of a team. The Bears are awful. Their defense is starting to fall apart now. It's too much to ask them to, to keep every game within like a touchdown, 7 nothing or something like that. And Michael Thomas for New Orleans is the best wide receiver in the league. Nine catches, 131 yards. All he does, he's not Antonio Brown. He does not Odell Beckham Jr. He doesn't talk. He just catches nine passes for 131 yards. It doesn't matter if it's Drew Brees throwing him or it's, it's Teddy Bridgewater or anyone. He is the best wide receiver. He's tremendous and a great win for New Orleans. And Brees should be back in about a week or two. So it'll be their, their time to go. It's 7.51. You're listening to Iron Sports. This is the True Oldies channel. It's 7.51. As I said, we're still waiting on Mark Leibovich. Uh, he's an amazing journalist and author. Uh, having some trouble connecting to him at the moment, but hopefully we can get him on uh, before the end of the show here. Ira, it's interesting you bring that up about Mitchell Trubisky. I think that there's already a mutiny there. Uh, he had two garbage time touchdowns. I'll give him that. But outside of that, he was terrible. They ran the ball seven times yesterday and had him throw 50. So it's a strange balance. I don't know if they know what they're doing, Ira, but where do you go from here? I mean, do you, you, they got the defense. Do you draft another quarterback next year? I, I just don't know what to do. Well, the, the Trubisky kind of has the pressure of being drafted ahead of Mahomes and Watson, Deshaun Watson. So now these other two quarterbacks are people considering for MVP of the league, and you're worried. That, and, and they moved up in the draft, gave up draft choices to get him. Uh, it's, it's just – and also you're a town that loves football. It's a sports town. It's tough. It, it's just going to get worse. I mean, this thing is going to spiral. Unless they start winning some games, this is going to spiral out of control by the end of the year. Ira, let's talk about um, Baltimore and Seattle. This game to me was the game of the week because Russell Wilson's on an MVP crash course. He just finds a way to win inside and out. And the Ravens are a team that you're still scratching your head a little bit like, is Lamar Jackson the real deal? And after yesterday's game, I don't want to take anything away from Russell Wilson, but they got beat handily by Baltimore. It was handily, and Russell Wilson made a big mistake. I mean, when you're driving, you're leading the game 10-6, you're in control of the game, and then you throw a pick six, uh, and they run back. and, and you, That was a chance for them to really take control of the game because, you know, Baltimore has trouble coming back. Uh, when they're down, uh, but just a terrible mistake by Russell Wilson. And Lamar Jackson managed the game great, made the passes he had to. He rushed the ball for 116 yards, and it was the Earl Thomas revenge game. People remember Earl Thomas was a, a safety on the Le- Legion of Doom, uh, left uh, Seattle and said he never talked to, has talked to Pete Carroll since. Um, very upset at Seattle but when they dumped him after he got injured. Uh, and now this was the revenge game. And I think he motivated Baltimore and played with a lot of fire. He didn't have that great a game himself, but I think he got the team motivated to win against Seattle. And now Seattle, they're 5-2, and two, but they've lost two games at home, so, which is a surprise because they're usually one of the best home teams in the league. And that, that's what was worrying me about that game. You know, looking at it from a betting point of view or just as a, you know, a conscious spectator, thinking, man, Seattle's really hard to play in. Uh, Lamar Jackson has to go across the country. Is this going to slow him down? And obviously it did not. And they just, they, the game plan was phenomenal for slowing down who was the MVP going into that game. 754, I don't think we're going to be able to get uh, Mark Leibovich phone going to voicemail. I don't know if he has no service, but uh, hopefully we can line him up possibly for next week. Ira... I got to tell you, this Cowboys-Eagles game I thought would be a lot closer than it was. The Eagles looked awful, for for lack of a better word. They looked unmotivated to play. They looked unenthused, and they got thoroughly outcoached by Jason Garrett. Yeah, I mean, this was a disaster for Carson Wentz. I mean, the one thing you have to talk about is the Eagles are 8-10 in games when Wentz has started. 
uh, hits in the last his last 18 games. Uh, must win for both teams. They were both three and three going in the game, and people expected a close game. And it was just Dallas was on a three-game losing streak. Uh, everyone wanted Jason Garrett's head. Uh, everyone's yelling at the Cowboys. This is a disaster. But they. Uh, uh, Philly, the funny thing is, Philadelphia always defers on the coin flip. They always, If they win, they for 33 straight games, they always want to get the ball first. But in this game, they decide to get the ball first. instead of. I mean, they always want to have the other teams to get the ball first for the second half. They deferred and took the ball, and they fumbled the first two times they had it. So just a total disaster for the Eagles and a great win for the Cowboys. It, no, it was. And, and, you know, you could tell from early on that they just they were going to outclass them. And uh, – <sighs> At what point, you know, we're talking about Mitchell Trubisky, Ira, and how they're, they're going to run him out of town. Do you think that we're going to see this kind of reaction to Carson Wentz? Like, you know, you, you stated his record. He's not winning big games. The Super Bowl win was not on his back. It was on Nick Foles' back. He's getting paid a ton of money. How big do you think the leash is here with Carson Wentz? Um, oh, he has a huge lease. They just gave him a, a monster contract. I think that what's interesting about this game is that people have been talking about should Dak get this money and should Dak be paid? Well, Wentz has been paid, so they're sort of saying that he's gonna, they were judging against each other. Um, I think, though, no. I think they're, they're all in with Carson Wentz. I think the problem is that they're going to see that he's not winning the big games and Nick Foles has. Now, fortunately for Carson, Nick Foles is not playing in Jacksonville winning games. I think if Nick Foles went down to Jacksonville and they were – Five and one, or or four and two, right now. I think that'd be extra pressure on Wentz. But uh, but anyway, he's got to start performing. Philadelphia hasn't played well. The coach predicted guaranteed a win, and uh, and and it wasn't. And they weren't even in the game. Yeah, Doug Peterson looks like a fool. Guaranteeing a win, then you know running away with your tail between your legs after getting shellacked by a division opponent. Not a good look there. Ira, tonight we got a big division matchup. I'm I'm torn on this one. Josh Gordon's not going to play for the Patriots. This team's been a patchwork on offense all season long. It's a 10-point spread, Ira. And after the Jets come off a win against Dallas, I think 10 points is a little bit too much here. What are you thinking for tonight? I'm still thinking New England's going to win. I am scared about the 10 points, but it's still um, Brady is uh, seven, won his last seven games against the Jets. Uh, I like the I like New England's defense. I think Sam Darnell is going to have trouble. It's uh, I think the Belichick's had extra, extra time to prepare for this game, and I know he had a big win last week. But I expect I mean looking at Belichick's record against rookie quarterbacks. I know Sam Darnell's not a rookie quarterback, but he's borderline rookie. Um, I like the Patriots to win this game easily. I do think they win for sure. But I, if I was a betting man. 10 points just seems like too much for a division matchup. They, they played the Bills to, what, six points? And, and you know, you're, you're riding high off that win. I don't know. I, 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 I definitely think they win because they're not going to lose to the Jets. But I think this one's going to be a lot closer than 10 points. Or what are you looking for next week? Well, you know, it's weird. The, the big game, I think, is Cleveland at New England at 4 o'clock. That's going to be intriguing. I mean, you have all the, the Baker Mayfields, the Tom Brady's, Odell Beckham Jr., New England. I think that's going to be a big time game. It's a, it's a, it's you know, when you're two and four, every game's a must win, and this is really a must win for Cleveland. And you don't want to have a must win you're playing at New England. So that to me, <laughs> I think, is going to be a great game. And I, unfortunately, Mahomes isn't playing at night on Sunday night. It would be Green Bay at KC. If you had Aaron Rodgers, and when they put this schedule together, they said. We got Patrick Mahomes and Aaron Rodgers going against each other. Uh, one team's six and one. One team's four and two. I mean, that was going to be the big game, but uh, uh, it's still going to be exciting between Green Bay and KC. And it's a, it's a game that KC they don't want to fall to four and three. 
So it's going to be an exciting game. But I think those are the, my two big games for next week. I'll be at the Steeler-Dolphin game on Monday. The Steelers, will, the Dolphins are playing at the Steelers on Monday night, which is not nationally that excited. But for a Steelers fan, I still think the Steelers are the four. If you look how the playoff picture is, they still have a chance to get that final wild card spot. You know, um, we'll talk playoffs in one sec, but that Green Bay and KC game, if Mahomes was healthy, that would probably be the biggest over in modern time. They'd have to set the line at 80. <laughs> I mean, we, with Aaron Rodgers, the way he's playing, combined with Mahomes, you don't see matchups like that every day. That would have been a shootout. It's unfortunate they were going to miss uh, old Patty Mahomes for a little while. Uh, you just mentioned the playoffs, Iris, so let's talk about how this is shaping up and, and you know who's on the outside looking in. Well, I like, you know, the Patriots are going to be the number one seed. I mean, and again, you're going to look at the AFC Championship game in New England. Uh, But the Bills at 5-1, and they've set themselves great for a wild card. I mean, they are almost two games ahead of the next team competing for the wild card. So the Bills really have a good shot to actually uh, be one of the wild cards. The Chiefs look like they could win the division and Colts at 4-2. and But everyone else is in it. And and even at 2-4, and I think the Steelers are in it. But but I think uh, the Jets the Dolphins, the Bengals, and the Broncos have won two wins, but anyone who watched the Broncos play in Slacker play, I mean, they're just going to get killed the rest of the season. But the Bengals look disastrous. Dolphins, of course, and I don't think, I think the Jets will lose tonight and, and, they'll, and they'll be a disaster. And then in the NFC, San Francisco, the Packers, Saints, and Cowboys all are controlling their divisions. But as a wild card, you've got the Vikings, Carolina, and Seattle for that wild card spot. But again, you have bad teams like the Redskins, uh, that are that are complete disaster. But but you know the Rams. I mean, it's still early. It's still they've only played six games. When we get to like nine or ten, but uh, it's uh, it's it's shaping up. And I don't you don't want to predict too much because you don't know about what injuries will be. But if you're a Bills fan and you're five and one right now, you've got to feel good about that because you've really set yourselves up for at least that wild card spot. And the Bills haven't been in the playoffs in so long, so I think that's a that's a good good spot for them. Ira, we are just about out of time. What are you doing this week? Well, uh, I'm going to be hopefully going to World Series. Uh, it'll be exciting. I've been to over 50 World Series games, most of them Yankee games. And, uh, there is that something special about being at, that world, at a World Series. And I'm going to go in Washington, and, and this town hasn't had it in, say, 60, 70 years. So they're going to be pumped, and, and it'll be great to be there. And I love the fact that this is a, a tough game. And then I'll go to the uh, – Steelers will actually do the show right before I go to the Steelers-Dolphins game on Monday. So this is the last week of baseball. I mean, we might have uh, game six and seven uh, next Tuesday and Wednesday, but it'll be the last week of baseball. And then next week we get to really talk about the NBA. I know they're starting this week. Tomorrow night is uh, the Clippers and and, and the Lakers, and the season's beginning, and and everyone's pumped about that. And it goes on forever, uh, and everyone's so excited about this year. But it'll be – and you're seeing on the scrolling on the TV, you're watching ESPN today, you're going to see all these players sign – and you're seeing what's happening is a lot of teams now, these players are not going free agent. They're up for their, their renewals and they're signing contracts now. And you're not going to see the movement in the next two years that you saw last year because a lot of these young players are like, well, you're really offering me four years, $130 million contract. And you guys like Buddy Heal, four years, $95 million, And they're taking those contracts. And, and you're seeing and this is like the last day before them to sign these extensions. So you're starting to see that on TV a lot. But it's going to be, look, I was pumped for the year, but we don't have the NBA Finals till June. <laughs> <laughs> so we still have to go through fall and winter before we get to the NBA, but and college basketball season starts. But um, but I'm, I look, we're in the heart of football, and I and we're heart of baseball, and I love it. This is a great time of year. I want to thank Dr. Jonathan Gelber so much for popping by. On behalf of Ira, I'm Mike. Let's talk next Monday night. It's Ira on sports.